National Archives podcast series. I'm going to talk to you this afternoon about how wills can help you with your family history research. And I'll also help you to navigate through your way through the minefield of probate records. Um, to my mind, wills are, after births, marriages and deaths and census returns, probably the third most important resource for family historians. But compared to the others, they are massively underused. And I think that's, that's a big shame. So part of the reason I'm doing this today is to encourage more people to, to use wills and to get more out of them. Um, the main reason that they are, they are so comparatively underused is probably and, and undeniably true that they are much harder to access than the other records. We now have very straightforward access to births, marriages, and deaths and census returns online. The access to wills is a lot more complicated than that. It's not to say that the difficulties are insurmountable. It's just that you're going to have to work a little bit harder to get to the, the information that you want. And I, I really want to encourage you not to give up because wills are definitely worth the effort that, that you might take to find them. The talk will deal with England and Wales. Scotland and Ireland have and have always had their own uh, probate system. So this is pr uh, primarily to do with England and Wales. So, the basics. What is a will? Very basic question. Hopefully most of you know exactly what it is, but just to define it really in its simplest form, it's a set of instructions left by someone describing what they want to happen to their possessions after they die. Uh, you'll often hear the phrase, the last will and testament, and strictly speaking, a will relates to the inheritance of land, whereas the uh, testament deals with personal property. But for our purposes, and, and for family history generally, it's irrelevant. There is no real distinction. It's the last will and testament. It's one document. Unfortunately, it's true to say, the vast majority of people did not leave wills and have not left wills. They tend to be left by people with something to leave. My ancestors, for example, once they'd uh, split the two turnips between the two children, that was about all there was to leave. So it's true to say definitely you're more likely to find the wills of the nobility, the gentry, merchants, wealthy farmers, army and navy officers, clergymen, doctors and so on, people from the upper echelons of society, not my ancestors but yours, obviously. But that's not an excuse not to look. Okay? Over 2,500 wills of labourers, of ordinary labourers, are among the records of the country's senior probate court that we'll talk about in a little while. Interestingly, one group of professionals who are notably underrepresented in probate records are solicitors. And that's probably because they know a thing or two, and they know that in most cases there is no need to leave a will, because automatically, in, in English law, a man dying, the property, his possession will go to his wife. It's as simple as that. Why have a solicitor to take a part of your estate to tell you that, when you know that's going to happen anyway. So solicitors do tend to be underrepresented in these records for that reason. So it's very important as well to be aware of the Married Women's Property Act of 1881, because prior to that, women were the possessions of their husbands. It's, it's a fact. Um, on marriage, everything that the woman owned automatically became the husband's. So she couldn't leave a will if she was a married woman because there was nothing to leave. She owned nothing. But... Roughly a quarter of wills in the records that we have, have survived are women's wills. So spinsters, widow, uh, widows have left wills. And roughly a quarter of the wills you will find are left by women. And I think that's quite surprising for some people. What information do they contain? Obviously this is what we really want them for. They are really a family historian's dream. 
Uh, one of the main attractions for me is that unlike the other records that we use, all, all the births, marriages and deaths and census returns, all these records created by the government and by ecclesiastical authorities, these wills were written by our ancestors themselves. So they've got that personal touch about them that, that the other documents lack. But of course it is what they contain that really makes them such important documents for us. And it's all about family relationships. Sons, daughters daughters-in-law, wives, husbands, aunts, uncles, cousins, even mothers and fathers. You'll find all these relationships mentioned in wills and, and much more. And of course there's all the places that are mentioned in wills, all the little packet bits of land, the farms, the fields and so on. And the personal possessions, particularly in women's wills, you get wonderful little items of jewellery that have been left, things that obviously really meant something to them. So you're getting a real idea of what your ancestors were like by reading their wills. Also, some of the little personal touches that reveal something extra about our ancestors. Um, the sun cut off with the proverbial shilling that you come across every now and then. And there's a very good reason for that, because a person who has left nothing in a will could contest it and say that the testator had forgotten about him. But if you say, to my worthless son, and that is a genuine text from a will I found recently, to my worthless son, one shilling, then the son can't contest it because he has been remembered and they know what they thought of them. The burial instructions, you know, I, I wish to be buried in such and such a parish next to so-and-so and, and so on. The moving personal comments, one of my favourite is in, in, in uh, Lewis Carroll's grandfather's will, where he spoke very touchingly about his, his wife, and he described her in, in, in glowing terms and said, a heart more warmly attached to hers she will never find, which was, I think was pretty, really nice. You won't get that in a birth, marriage or death certificate. The unexpected details, when I was looking for, for labourers' wills in, in the courts, I found one of a gentleman called William Smith, who lived in uh, Bushy, where I come from, in Hertfordshire. And you wouldn't expect the will of, of William Smith, a labourer of Bushy, to tell you anything particularly mind-bogglingly exciting, but you'd be wrong. In this case, he mentions where he was born. Now, for someone dying in 1820 called William Smith, the fact that you now know he was born in a little village in Bedfordshire well, there you go. That's, that's a result straight away. So, really, the moral is you just never know what you're going to find. So do look. Do pursue them. 1858 and all that. Right. First question to ask yourself when you're beginning a search for a will is, did the person die before or after 1858? It's a key date. Before 1858, and, and, and since medieval times, the Church of England have been responsible for proving wills throughout England and Wales using this network of ecclesiastical courts covering the whole country. All of this changed on the 12th of January 1858 when a civil probate system was introduced. So 1858 is really one of the most important dates of family historians, second probably only to, to 1837 in your family history calendar. So on this date, the ecclesiastical courts were closed down and a new network of civil district probate registries was set up. just want to just take a little diversion for a while and give you a bit of background to this. Um, those of you who've heard me talking before will know of my love for Charles Dickens and how important his works can be in understanding what life was like for our ancestors. I came across this wonderful little chapter, which, uh, section, which I hope you'll allow me to read, from David Copperfield, which gives a wonderful background as to why this big move took place and why it was so important that the, the ecclesiastical courts were closed down and the civil registration took over. He says here, strolling past the prerogative office, I submitted that I thought the prerogative office rather a queerly managed institution. Mr. Spenlow inquired in what respect. 
I replied that perhaps it was a little nonsensical that the registry of that court containing the original wills of all persons leaving effect within the immense province of Canterbury for three whole centuries should be an accidental building, never designed for the purpose, leased by the registrars for their own private emolument, unsafe, not even ascertained to be fireproof, choked with the important documents it held, and positively, from the roof to the basement, a mercenary speculation of the registrars, who took great fees from the public, and crammed the public's wills away anyhow and anywhere, having no other object than to get rid of them cheaply. That perhaps it was a little unreasonable that these registrars, in the receipt of profits amounting to eight or nine thousand pounds a year, should not be obliged to spend a little of that money in finding a reasonably safe place for the important documents which all classes of people were compelled to hand over to them, whether they would or no. That perhaps, in short, this prerogative office of the Diocese of Canterbury was altogether a pestilent job, and such a pernicious absurdity that but for its being squeezed away in a corner of St Paul's churchyard, which few people knew, it must have been turned completely inside out and upside down long ago. Mr. Spenlow smiled as I became modestly warm on the subject and then argued this question with me as he had argued the other. He said, what was it after all? It was a question of feeling. If the public felt that their wills were in self-keeping and took it for granted that the office was not to be made better, who was the worse for it? Nobody. It might not be a perfect system, nothing was perfect, but what he objected to was the insertion of the wedge. Under the prerogative office, the country had been glorious. Insert the wedge into the prerogative office and the country would cease to be glorious. He considered it the principle of a gentleman to take things as he found them, and he had no doubt the prerogative office would last our time. I deferred to his opinion, though I had great doubts of it myself. I find he was right, however, for it has not only lasted to the present moment, but has done so in the teeth of a great parliamentary report made 18 years ago, when all these objections of mine were set forth in detail, and when the existing stowage for wills was described as equal to the accumulation of only two years and a half more. What they have done with them since, whether they have lost many or whether they sell any now and then, I do not know. I'm glad mine is not there, and I hope it may not go there yet a while. So they've managed to cram 18 years' worth of wills into two and a half years of storage. So you can see that the situation was not perfect, and this is really one of the driving factors. This was written in 1849 by Charles Dickens, so nine years more before the, the, this system was, was closed down. But well, I think that gives a good little background as to, to what life was really like in these courts. But really, the main benefit for, for us as family historians is that from 1858, there is a single national annual alphabetical index to all wills proved in England and Wales. So finding a will is a fairly straightforward process. Before 1858, as we'll see, it's a much more complicated process. So where are the records kept? Post-1858, the place you need to go to is First Avenue House on High Holborn, London. The records are not online. We'll talk about that in a little while. Before 1858, the records are now spread around the country in county and local record offices, as well as the National Archives. Some are online, but by no means all. Let's just do the easy bit first. This is Somerset House in Victorian times. Didn't change very much, did it? It was there for 150 years. It was the home of the probate search room, and this is what it looked like in the Victorian times. So anyone who used the search room in, in the latter stages of the 20th century will recognise that. You'll certainly recognise the, the scene, um, the desks, the shelving. But it, it, didn't, it didn't change a great deal. But all that changed in, in 1998 when they moved into uh, their, their current offices in First Avenue House. And that's where you can see the indexes or, or the calendars as they're known today. 
And it's probably, this is probably where you're going to have the biggest problem. Um, obviously, you, everyone sitting here, can get to London, obviously, because you're here. But for people who can't get to London, it can be a little bit difficult to access these records, unless you can get to, to the probate search room itself or to one of the few places that has copies of the indexes. We have them here at the Family Record Centre up to 1943. The National Archives at Kew have, have a similar collection, and the Society of Genealogists have some. You can also access them through the Latter-day Saints Family History Centres. But none of these records are complete. They don't have the, the complete set because they are updated every day at uh, First Avenue House. That's the new wills approved. So that's going to probably be a problem for most people actually accessing these things. Although none of it is online, there is a project underway to digitise the calendars and at some stage, I don't know when, they will be available online. Once you're able to access them, this is the sort of thing you will see. These are the, this is a page from the calendar of 1870, and very easy to use, very simply arranged. Every year, an alphabetical list of all the wills proved in England and Wales, alphabetically by surname and then by forename within each surname. So it, it's pretty straightforward. Um, we'll just have a look at an entry here in detail. It's, it's our old friend that we've just heard from, Mr Dickens himself. So this is just the entry in the calendar. And you can see the enormous amount of information you'll get just from the entry in the calendar. If you compare this with what you would get from a death certificate, there is not a huge amount on the death certificate that you haven't got here. If I'll just read it to you. Dickens, Charles, otherwise Charles John Huffham Esquire. This is the value of his estate, up to £80,000. Uh, it was proved on the 19th of July, 1870, which was the date at the top of the, the page. The will with the codicil, so with, with an afterthought, but he, he, he wrote after the original will was written, of Charles, otherwise Charles John Huffham Dickens, late of Gads Hill Place near Rochester in the county of Kent, Esquire, deceased, who died 9th of June 1870 at Gads Hill Place aforesaid, was proved at the principal registry. This is an example of a typical Victorian London-centric approach to things. The principal registry means London by the oaths of Georgina Hogarth of Gads Hill Place aforesaid spinster, she was actually his sister-in-law and housekeeper, and John Forster of Palace Gate House Kensington, who was his first biographer, in the county of Middlesex, Esquire, the executors. So we've got his residence, we've got his occupational that just says Esquire, but normally it would, it would give the, the, the trade the person was involved in. We've got his date of death, we've got where he lived, We've got the value of his estate. We've got the names of his executors. And if those, if those executors... I'm surprised it doesn't say Georgina Hogarth was his sister-in-law because it normally would give the, the relationship if the executors were relatives. So you're getting a huge amount of information for nothing. That doesn't, doesn't cost you a penny once you've accessed the indexes. And if you compare that with what you would get on his death certificate, you'd get the cause of death you'd get an informant on the death certificate who may be a relative not mentioned there, but not a huge amount extra. So it is really good value for money. So after 1858, pretty straightforward. Before 1858, a minefield. And it really is anything but straightforward. Realistically, if you are looking for the will of someone who died before 1858, the chances are you're going to have to search the records of two or three, possibly even more, probate courts before you can establish whether or not your ancestor left a will. And remember, of course, your ancestor may not have left a will. What I'm going to try to do here is just to explain the hierarchy, because it is quite complicated, but if you can sort of focus your mind over these three levels, the three-tier system is quite important. It's all tied up with the way that the Church of England was organised by provinces, so you've got 
Canterbury and York as the two provinces, dioceses, which, were, which bishops were at the head of, and archdeaconries run by archdeacons, by coincidence. So with probate, it all starts with the prerogative court of Canterbury. This is the court of the province of Canterbury. It's the superior court of probate for the whole of England and Wales. So as well as having this jurisdiction over the, the province of Canterbury, it also has a jurisdiction at a certain level to the rest of the country and also, very importantly, to British people uh, dying overseas as well. It's, it's, that's under their jurisdiction. At the same level, there is the prerogative court of York, which does the same job for the north of the country. If someone owned, a lot of it is to do with where you owned land and property. Now, if someone owned property in both provinces, York and Canterbury, Canterbury being the senior province would be responsible for proving the will. That's at a very basic level. It doesn't always work as straightforwardly as that, but that's the basic principle. So beneath these, what we have is the, the diocesan courts. And I've just given you an example of one, the Consistory Court of Norwich. So they're normally called Consistory Courts, but some of them have slightly different names. There are altogether 24 courts at this level around the country. So some of them are coming under the prerogative court of Canterbury, some of them under the prerogative court of York, but they are all at that, that level of probate. So the Consistory Court of, York, of, of Norwich there and 23 others. Now the Consistory Court of Norwich has jurisdiction in the Diocese of Norwich, which includes Norfolk, Suffolk and little bits of Cambridgeshire and Essex as well. It's, it's quite, a, quite a complicated thing geographically. Um, Going down another level, we come to the Archdeacon's Courts. And as an example here, the Archdeaconry Court of Sudbury is, is one of the four courts covered by the Consistory Court of Norwich. So actually the Diocese of Norfolk in includes the, the Archdeaconries of Norfolk, Norwich, Sudbury and Suffolk. This is just one of them. There are three others. So that's roughly how it works. So each of these 23 Consistory Courts at that level will also have courts at that level underneath them. Just to make it a little bit more complicated, a little box at the bottom right there, peculiar courts. There are a number of courts which are not part of, the, of this setup, that have their own jurisdiction. Deanery courts, manor courts, prebendary courts. There's even a court of the Chancellor of the University of Oxford. The question you want to know is where are the records held? Help is at hand, and this is it. This is your Bible of probate probate jurisdictions, where to look for wills, written by Jeremy Gibson and Elsa Churchill. Everything you need to know about probate is, is in here in terms of jurisdictions. It goes through county by county and tells you what courts have existed at different times. Some of them didn't make it up to 1858, some of them carrying out business well before that, particularly some of the London ones. But here we are, for example, Huntingdonshire here tells you what courts existed, where the records are held, which, what indexes have been produced, printed, published, and also a little map of the county indicating where there are peculiar parishes that are part of peculiar jurisdictions. So every county in England and Wales is in here. I believe there's even a section for, for the Channel Islands and for Scotland as well. So it's a very, very useful guide to, to what's available. The one bit, it's, it's the fifth edition here, and it's published in 2002, so it's probably a little bit out of date, particularly as far as online indexes are concerned, but it's definitely worth investing in a copy. Talking of online access, I would thoroughly 
recommend that you begin any search for a will before 1850, of someone dying before 1858, in the Documents Online website, which is the National Archives Index to PCC Wills. Prerogative Court of Canterbury is the, the full name for it. Over one million wills proved in the Prerogative Court of Canterbury, covering the years 1384 to 1858. So they're, they're some of the earliest records that we have, certainly the earliest records we have at the Family Record Centre. It's free to search. You can do any search, as much searching as you like, and it will tell you what wills exist for the names, the details that you put in there. It costs £3.50 to download a copy of any will, regardless of how long it is, whether it's two or three lines or whether it's 30 pages. It will still cost you £3.50 to download. It's free to download them here at the Family Record Centre and at the National Archives at Kew. What I'm going to do, this is the uh, address, it's nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash documents online. You'll see that this actually, this database contains a lot of records, a lot more records than, than PCC wills. We've got World War I records, uh, Siemens medals, records of Royal Naval Seamen and so on. What we're going to look at now is the wills. And now on this page, click on the word search and we get the little dialogue box that's very familiar to family historians the world over now if we're doing any sort of online searching. First name, last name, occupation, place and other keywords. If you've been to any of my previous talks you'll know that I would recommend that you put in as little information as possible, less is more. So we'll type in, we're going to do a search for the will of a man called William Wordsworth who you may have heard of. No need to put anything else, we know or we could easily find out that he died in 1850 and we know that he lived in the Lake District. So. We just need to put in his name and we'll see what we get. Well, we get two possibilities. So the second one there, Will of William Wordsworth of Rydal Mount, Westmoreland, looks like the one that we're looking for. You just need to click through a number of screens. First of all, see details, then add to shopping, and then check out. Now, this is the point at which, if you're doing this at home or in your local library, they might ask you to cough up some funds. And it is going to work. There we go. Now, you'll notice we've got two chunks of it because it is a fairly big will just to make sure you're opening it in the right order when you're trying to read the will if you look at the image reference there this one says 76 stroke 72 this one says 76 stroke 73 you want to read number 72 first and they don't always appear in that order look at this first one and what you're doing you're downloading a PDF file which is a, a standard format for image files on, on the internet when you, when you open this you'll see Always at the start of these, we get this, this title page that's just telling you it's a, a National Archives document. And when you come to the first page here, normally, or in most cases, your will won't be the one at the top because it's going to start further down the page. And there it is, William Wordsworth Esquire. For some people, you, you might find if you haven't read these wills or you haven't read the, the handwriting that it's quite difficult. The best thing I would say is to get a photocopy, get a printout rather, of the will take it home with you and read it at your leisure. It is quite formulaic and once you get into it it's quite easy to read but I do understand that if you're not familiar with this type of handwriting it may be a little bit difficult. The National Archives website actually has a very good tutorial on paleography and one of the, the types of handwriting it deals with is this classic 19th century uh, script. So, I mean, it just starts as most of these wills do. This is the last will and testament of me, William Wordsworth of Rydal Mount in the county of Westmoreland, Esquire. I appoint my son, William Wordsworth the Younger, of the city of Carlisle, gentleman, 
William Strickland Cookson of Lincoln's Inn in the county of Middlesex, gentlemen, and John Carter of Rydal Mount in the said county of Westmoreland, gentlemen, trustees and executors of this my will. So he's just naming his executors, and then he's going to go on to all the bequests. And don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole will out to you, because we'd be here all day. But you can just see at a glance that he's mentioning here my grandson, Henry Kerwin Wordsworth, uh, the eldest son of my said son, John Wordsworth. So exactly the sort of information we want as family historians. It's, it's a gift. To my grandson, William Wordsworth, he's got there, the second son of my son, John Wordsworth. So you're building up a really good picture of a family just from a single document and in fact I won't show you the whole will from that one will you are able to get all this information if you knew nothing else about that person you would get that you would get that he has a brother called Richard Wordsworth who died before 1847 because he's described in the will as my late brother Richard Wordsworth and the will was written in 1847 he also mentions Richard's wife, Jane, and he mentions their son, John Wordsworth, describes him as a surgeon of Ambleside, who had also died before 1847. You get Dorothy Wordsworth, his sister. You get his children, the Reverend John Wordsworth, William Wordsworth of Carlisle, the gentleman who we, we saw mentioned before. Dorothy Wordsworth, who had also died before 1847, who was married to Edward Quillinan. And then you get... His five grandchildren, Henry Kerwin Wordsworth, William Wordsworth, John Wordsworth, Charles Wordsworth, and Jane Stanley Wordsworth, all from one document. Where else can you get that for £3.50 in family history? It's pretty good. As I said before, there's not a huge amount available online, but more and more is coming online, and quite a bit has actually happened just in the last few months. I said this wasn't about Scotland, but it's worth mentioning that if you are looking for Scottish wills, scotlandspeople.gov.uk has the lot from the earliest years up to, I think it's the early 1900s. All wills proved in Scotland. For English counties, probably your best uh, starting place, I mean, you can have a look in there, and it does, it does mention in this book some online indexing, but as I said, it's four or five years out of date, this. But if you go onto the Genuki website, um, county by county, they will give you indications of what's available and links through to the online websites. These counties, Buckinghamshire, Cheshire, Gloucestershire, Wiltshire, all complete, as far as certainly for the pre-1858 period, all wills available. Wiltshire, actually, like the uh, PCC website that we've looked at, gives you access to the actual wills themselves. They haven't put them all on yet, but they're working on it. Buckinghamshire, Cheshire and Gloucestershire are just indexes, but you can then order a copy of the will from the, the record office. Some other counties, like London, Derbyshire and Kent, have a substantial amount available online, but again, not everything. If you're using this here at the Family Records Centre, you can go on to our Opera system, click on Family History, and go to Wills. And you'll see all this long list here of wills that are available online, many of the ones I've just mentioned to you. Links through to them, you don't have to do the work finding them yourself, just click on the link and you'll be on to the relevant website. The London one, this Middlesex Archdeaconry Court of Middlesex, over 10,000 wills for Londoners between 1609 and 1810 now available online, so that's a, a significant resource. There are a number of very important records that are associated with wills that I haven't touched upon. Each one of these would probably justify a talk in itself, so I'm just going to give you a very rough outline of what there is. Original wills. What we're looking at generally are the registered copies of wills. 
So the will was submitted to the court, probate was granted, making it a legal document, and a clerk copied that information into the register. So the copy of William Wordsworth's will that we saw before was not written by Wordsworth, was not written by his solicitor, but by a clerk at the Prerogative Court of Canterbury, one of the people that Dickens was talking about before. As well as the, the registered copies of wills, in most cases you will find there are original wills held. Now, normally the record offices will naturally encourage you to use the registered copies because they're less fragile uh, and less vulnerable to damage. But the original wills will normally exist. Uh, the beauty of them is that they will have your ancestor's hand, uh, signature on them. He probably didn't write them, or she didn't write them themselves, but they will have signed them or made their mark, and you may even have a seal on them in some cases. They can be really wonderful documents to, to look at. There's also a significant collection of original wills in the National Archives because during the Commonwealth period, the Prerogative Court of Canterbury ceased to function effectively, as you can imagine, with the uh, chaos around the country. There are stories of the records being carried on carts from one office to another, which is quite scary in, in the middle of the Civil War. So there is a set of a, a collection of original wills which were never registered at the court but were still held by the court. We have microfilm copies of those wills here. Indexing is poor, let's say. But if you suspect there may have been a record in a will left by one of your ancestors in that period, it's worth asking about that collection of records. Administrations I haven't mentioned. If someone died in testate, i.e. without leaving a will, their next of kin or someone to whom they owed money could ask for letters of administration to be issued to them, which granted them the right to administer that person's estate in, in the absence of a, of a named executor in a will. Records of administrations are always held with records of wills, at least they were because they were collected, created rather, by the same uh, authorities, by the same courts. Inventories, um, particularly up to, say, the late 1700s, it was very, very common for a will for probate to be granted to the executor and one of the executor's jobs was to create, a, to produce an inventory of the deceased's possessions. So when we go back into the 1600s particularly, we get these wonderful lists. They go, th they go through room by room and list the things that the person owned in that room. They're wonderful for social history to get a feeling of what life was really like for people in Tudor times and even earlier. They can be wonderful. Um, they tend to run out in the late 1700s. Court stopped asking for them. Uh, but when, where they exist, they are really fascinating reading. Litigation, of course, again, we get back to Dickens and we think about uh, Bleak House, about all the, uh, the, the, the long case there that was going on, running on for 20 or 30 years or so, Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. Um, the records of litigation are also held by these probate courts. So the Prerogative Court of Canterbury's records, which we have here, are the wills and the administrations but there are countless other series of records within the Prerogative Court of Canterbury which deal with disputed inheritances, with all sorts of evidence that was brought to court um, when, when a will was disputed in some way. So there's a huge amount of information available in, in those records. And finally on this, death duties. Again, you could easily talk for an hour on death duties. The Inland Revenue was responsible for collecting duty payable on the estates of, of the deceased. And in order to do so, they asked for abstracts, they asked for copies of wills to be submitted to their office. 
They then produced abstracts, looked at who was receiving uh, the, the bequests, and went about the task of trying to take the, the money from them. Um, nothing changes in the inland revenue. They want to make sure they get every single penny they can get. And the records that they've kept are absolutely wonderful because they give us an insight not just into what the, the testator wanted to happen to their estate, but actually what happened to it. And you get little notes in the, in the ledgers about, for example, uh, he, the, the testator may name his daughter in the will, and there may be a note in the estate duty registers saying this person is now married, married on such and such a date to this person. Again, for family historians, this is exactly what we want, isn't it? So there's a huge range of extra information. Once you've found a will, that you could, you could investigate to see what else is out there. One of the things you, you will have noticed if you've read wills is that they weren't very keen on punctuation. And it's very difficult reading through a will, trying to find out what they actually mean, um, what, what they were trying to say. I think, again, solicitors were quite happy for this to happen because then they would have to interpret them. I just want to leave you with this. This is a genuine bit of text from a will, and it just shows you the sort of problems you might have if you don't put punctuation into text. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.